following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, continue in this prophetic portion, this prophecy and this vision section of Daniel's prophecy. One of the favorite wildlife videos of our family displays a couple of big big horn uh, sheep fighting and butting heads on the rocky cliffs, fighting over territorial rights and mating rights. It's a picture of a world in conflict where power struggles abound. Well, here Daniel is given a vision of two animals representing the kingdoms of men in battle, in a power struggle for conquest. But this vision is soon replaced by another vision that reveals an even greater threat to God's people, something that will happen hundreds of years after Daniel is given this vision a great affliction that will fall upon God's people who are persecuted in the second century, and a vision that foreshadows the many afflictions that God's people will suffer throughout the ages and until the final conflict at the very end of time as we know it. God knows all things. God is powerful over all things. And God can be trusted to protect his people, and bring his flock safely home to their final resting pastures. I read the first 14 verses of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram 
from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we come to a text of great vision, of perplexity, and we need your spirit for understanding. Give us wisdom and help us to apply these matters to our hearts this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a popular video on the internet a few weeks ago that showed a little boy, just a mere toddler, riding a tricycle on his driveway. And then, though the boy was minding his own business, he was viciously attacked by the neighbor dog. But no sooner had the dog attacked the little boy than the little boy's house cat comes flying out of the edge of the video footage, attacking the dog and sending the canine yelping in retreat. Now, thankfully, all of this was captured on a security film, and you can only imagine how grateful the parents were after seeing the video and realizing that their little boy's rescuer was their own faithful house cat, sending that naughty dog away in with his tail between his legs. The animal kingdom is a world in conflict. And human kingdoms fight like cats and dogs and argue and come after each other. We live in a world where power and control and desire for, uh, desire for power and control are great. Conflict is reality. In a world in rebellion against its maker... One nation disputes another nation over its borders. Oil drillers and environmentalists engage in lawsuits determining the proper use of land, whether for energy production or preservation. Children in the backseat of the car argue and fight over limited space. And the sworn enemy of God and his people abuses his power to steal kill, destroy, and to lead astray. Power 
corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, in the words of Lord Acton. In our text, we see several examples of the corruption of power, first between nations, and secondly, in the rise of a rebellious power against God, who diabolically opposes and oppresses God's people, threatening the very condition of their souls. And so tonight, I want to look at three power struggles. The first, political. The second, perilous. But the third, personal. To understand the power struggles within our own hearts. This vision section of Daniel that began last time in chapter 7 of Daniel's prophecy. In that prophecy, we witness the rise of four beasts that represent great kingdoms of men. And in chapter 7, these beasts are quite impressive. But in the end, they are no match for the ancient of days. The divine man. The divine son of man the one who would take away the dominions of these beasts and their kingdoms. It says of the Ancient of Days that his dominion is everlasting, it will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that cannot be destroyed. Now, two years later, before Babylon's fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel receives another vision that takes him to Susa, the future capital of the Medo-Persian Empire. And here he receives a vision of two kinds of livestock, a ram and a goat, representing the rise of two great powers, the Medo-Persians and eventually the Greeks. And the nature of these beasts, these livestock animals, characterize the coercive and intimidating abuse of power, the political state, which desires to control the affairs of men. In this vision, Daniel sees the ram charging from the east, charging westward, westward and northward and southward, and says that no beast could stand before him. They all fell. Indeed, Babylon would fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, which is represented by a ram with two horns, the one being higher and larger, representing Persia. Could be, no one could rest, be rescued from the power of this ram. This ram did as he pleased. It became great. And so it is true that the will of kings is to rule, to coerce others under their dominion and control. The desire for power and conquest, the desire for greatness runs deep within the hearts of men. The illusion of control. To force other people to do one's bidding has been the Achilles heel of humanity ever since the fall. To wield power is oftentimes to cruelly oppress those who oppose us. Our desire for dominion and control. And a shift of his vision... Daniel then sees a goat charging from the east with such speed that he does not even touch the ground. Gabriel, the angel, will later interpret to Daniel that this indeed represents the future kingdom of Greece 
and the great single horn on the goat represents Alexander the Great, one of the greatest military strategists in world history. Alexander the Great, by the age of 26, had conquered all the known Mediterranean and Near Eastern world. Through the use of superior technology and tactics and swift warfare, overwhelmed a, a, a superior army in terms of numbers by defeating the Persians on their own territory. Notice how verse 6 refers to the powerful wrath of the goat. Represents how one leader is offended. Offended with great fury at another's presumption to assume power. Power and its maintenance is unstable in the hands of men. Who are all too eager to knock one another off their podium like boys playing king of the mountain. The invincible, the once invincible ram is struck and trampled upon by the speed and power of the goat. His power is unstoppable and yet unstable and temporary in the hands of the Greeks. His great horn will be broken and scattered to the four corners of the earth, the four winds, it says. In the words of Abraham Lincoln, force is all-conquering, but its victories are short-lived. Force is all-conquering, but its victories are short-lived. Mankind lives for power and conquest and control, but soon slips his grasp. And indeed, Alexander the Great's rule would be short-lived, for he died mysteriously of a fever at the young age of 33, and his kingdom was divided up among his four generals. I grew up in the 1980s, and during the 1980s, the height of the Cold War, many of us were concerned over the growing nuclear arms race between the U.S. and the USSR. Thirty years ago, our great fear was the geopolitical struggle between East and West, between capitalism and communism and Ronald Reagan became our hero who stared down the growing menace in Moscow, which finally capitulated, breaking up the Soviet Union and symbolized by the tearing down of the Berlin Wall in 1991. In the 20-plus years since, we've seen the growing threat of Islamic fascism and the global terror war. It seems that there is Nothing new under the sun. The political state exists to grow and preserve the power of the state. This was true in the days of Joseph in Egypt, whose pharaoh exploited the seven-year famine to confiscate the land of their people and to enslave them and take their freedom. Our own federal government flexes its muscles, encroaching its control over health care. Our own national security agency spies on its own people in the name of security. I expect in the coming generation we will only see increasing measures of control and intrusiveness 
in the lives of citizens. Nothing new is under the sun. But we should be reminded that despite where we live, time or place, God is sovereign and reigns securely on his throne. The ancient of days has secure control through the rise and fall of empires. That's one of the clear messages of Daniel's prophecy. Our freedoms may be threatened. Our economic interest and welfare may be compromised. We face growing new intimidations from a Russia eager to overstep its borders. We face cyber attacks from China. The potential for blackmail from rogue states like North Korea and Iran, even growing coercion from our own government. Indeed, our faith is tested and will be stretched. But I conclude that is not necessarily a bad thing. In this affluent age in which we live, which we are tempted to take for granted our faith, to find our comfort in the things that money can buy. The pressures of political power are a reminder to not be seduced by worldly attainments in the illusion of power and control. As believers, we must find our consolation in a risen and exalted Son of God who reigns over the kingdoms of the earth and ushers in a kingdom that will never end. Well, as intimidating as the ram and the goat may be, we're reminded that they are mere livestock. They are animals for sacrifice under the control of the good shepherd. A much greater and perilous threat is the little horn that comes out of one of the horns from the goat. This leader will not only be consumed with power and desire for greatness, but filled with a diabolical hatred for God, determined to oppress God's people. Scholars are pretty much universally convinced that this little horn speaks of an individual who goes by the name of Antiochus IV, who was a ruler in Syria who came to power in 175 B.C., almost 400 years after Daniel was given this prophecy. This individual was guilty of exalting himself above the heavens, of oppressing God's people and seducing them into unfaithfulness. You see, what the, in the historical record shows that after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among four generals one of which became the Seleucid dynasty over the region of Syria. And it's from this dynasty we have the rise of Antiochus IV, who was a very shrewd and conniving man who seized power ruthlessly and expanded his power southward and westward into Palestine, defeating Egypt in battle. In Daniel's vision, he paints a picture of this individual assaulting the host of heaven. And we know from history that this man, Antiochus IV, took a, a surname, Epiphanes, which was blasphemous, blasphemous translating God and God manifest, the illustrious God. 
his opponents changed the name to Epimanes, calling him the mad man, who is ruthless and vicious in his destruction of the people of God in Jerusalem. Verse 11 refers to this little horn figure as becoming great, even as great as the prince of the host. But the translation in the ESV is a little bit unclear in my mind. Other translations help us to understand that this is a man who magnified himself or who made himself to be great. And if you look ahead to the interpretation of the prophecy in verse 25, it sheds further light on the nature of this individual. It says that in his own mind he shall become great. This man did not rival the prince of peace. He did not rival God, though he called himself God manifest. But he was a one who was trumped up in his own mind, seizing power and oppressing God's people ruthlessly. It says in verse 10 that he grew great even unto the host of heavens, and he says he threw the stars down to the ground. Interpreters help us understand that these stars are best understood to be people, to be the leaders in the, in the inhabitants of Israel, God's people, the saints. It says in verse 24, it refers to the people who are the saints. So we can understand that the nature of this oppressor is casting down stars from heaven. In his assault on God, he's attacking and ruthless and sa- savagely butchering God's people. This cruel oppressor was determined to Hellenize the Jews and to stamp out the Jewish faith and its customs. He savagely attacked Jerusalem. It's between 168 and 165 B.C. The Antiochus IV slaughtered tens of thousands of the Jewish people. He removed the high priest, appointing his own in his place. He entered into the Holy of Holies. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He defiled the temple precincts. He erected a statue of Zeus and even performed human sacrifice inside the temple of God. Antiochus IV also outlawed circumcision, mandated the eating of unclean meat, profaned the Sabbath, as well as other feast days. And according to the intertestamental books, the books of Maccabees, we understand that the Jews endured this for three and a half years, where the regular worship in Jerusalem was ceased and cut off by this evil oppressor until the time that the, fam- the Jewish family Maccabees led the Jews in revolt to cast out the pagans and to restore sanctity in regular worship in Jerusalem. This famous victory is now celebrated in the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, which celebrates the restoration of proper worship in Jerusalem. And it's here that we can best understand, best interpret the obscure number in uh, verses 13 and 14, the conversation between the holy ones asking about how long this suffering will afflict God's people. And the response in verse 14 is 2,300 evenings and mornings. 
probably the best interpretation of that obscure number is the approximate three to three and a half years that, it, that, the, that the Jews would suffer without proper worship in Jerusalem under the oppression of Antiochus IV. And so it is in this text, we see God's people suffering, and it's also a, a paradigm that Jesus will refer to in his own teachings, anticipating the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's a foreshadowing of God's people suffering oppression under the hands of wicked, power-hungry men who rebel against the Almighty and abuse their power to afflict the saints. Read recently how the Middle East, which surprisingly has had a population of almost 30% Christians up until recent years, has now been reduced to less than 10% Christian with the rise of the growing of militant Islam, oppressing God's people, with the collapse of regimes in Iraq and in Egypt. Many of you are no doubt are familiar with the situation in Sudan where Boko Haram, the terrorist organization, which kidnapped 300 schoolgirls from a Christian region, threatening to sell them as slaves. God's people suffer oppression. And they cry out, how long? To echo the voice of lament in the Psalms. Well, here in verse 13, we see two holy ones, probably angels, asking, How much longer, O Lord? Must God's people suffer, these angelic beings who cannot bear to watch these things? Well, the Lord answers in verse 14, giving a number, reminding us that He is in control, that suffering is limited. Satan is on a leash. That just as the Satan was under God's control in the story of Job, so the evil one is under God's control even in cases such as this where God's people must suffer great oppression. We are reminded that seasons of suffering will end and God will bring restoration and deliverance. You and I don't face quite the oppression that our brothers and sisters face worldwide. That could change in the coming generation or two. I think a greater threat for us in our day is seduction. Seduction into the ways of the world. Caving in and believing the false promises of pleasure with our faith growing lukewarm and unfit for service to our high king. Verses 11 and 12 speak of the removing of the burnt offering, the ceasing of the regular sacrifices in the temple. And it says, because of transgression. And there's two main interpretations of this phrase, because of transgression. It could refer to the transgression of Antiochus IV. It very well could be the oppressor himself whose wickedness and oppression and transgression is causing suffering but it's at least as likely possible that the transgression referred to here speaks of the transgression of God's people. We're reminded that God's people were in exile because of transgression. Because of Israel's long history of idolatry, immorality, and injustice, having been forewarned by Moses and repeatedly warned and reminded by the prophets to return and repent. 
God's people were punished and sent into exile. And so the seasonal, the, the, the season of suffering that comes from the hand of oppressors is a reminder that we are guilty, that we are not without fault. And we must humble ourselves before the Lord, casting ourselves upon his mercy. Seduction tempts us to turn away from the Lord, to stop, to cease trusting in the Lord and to look to created things for our joy, our hope, and our satisfaction. And so we must be warned like our forefathers, lest we be seduced to worship created things rather than the Creator. This past Sunday morning, when Dr. Rogers arrived early here at the church, he noticed cars parked in our parking lot, and upon investigation, he discovered these cars were linked to a baseball game that was being played on the Nitrauer Field up the hill. And uh, I would trust in his respectful but firm manner, Dr. Rogers approached a, a small crowd of coaches and parents, uh, gently but firmly informing them that uh, they could not park here on Sunday morning. And uh, perhaps there was a day and age when people would respond to a gentle rebuke with kindness and respect, but not on this occasion. Some very belligerent and angry parents retaliated with uh, disrespectful comments, just expressing their entitlement to park here and arguing with our senior pastor about rights and privileges for parking on Sunday morning. As I talked with Dr. Rogers about this situation, it just it spoke to me of the worship wars. We come here to worship the living God. Others choose to worship differently. Perhaps it's a baseball game on Sunday morning. In fact, this was a part of a, a huge tournament that was, was uh, countywide. And uh, all these people had to do was simply drive around to park in the Nitchar parking lot. But just being told to park elsewhere cut against a deep sense of entitlement and a false sense of priority and alternative worship. Worshiping recreation, worshiping sports, worshiping economics, worshiping the privilege to compete at the level that their children were competing. You know... Evildoers will exalt themselves above the living God. They will oppress God's people and make things difficult for them economically. But seduction tempts us with the idols of the age to bow down to false allegiances. It could be sports. It could be performance in school. It could be the pressure to yield to the new morality, redefining marriage, redefining things that were once evil and calling them good. God's people will face pressure to compromise their convictions. And we need God's grace to uphold God's good order and his standards of righteousness. May we indeed hold fast to the steadfast anchor of Jesus Christ against the winds of change that would dash us mercilessly against the rocks. Well, we've considered power struggles both political and perilous, but uh, I would feel unfaithful to this text 
if I left you the impression that the power struggle is merely out there. That the problem of evil has to do with rulers and with wicked men opposed to God's people. Friends, you and I need to acknowledge there's a power struggle right here. There's a grievous power struggle that afflicts our own households because it runs deep into our very cracked and divided hearts. The prince, the prince mentioned in verse 11, the prince of the host who is repeatedly referenced to in verse 25, the prince of princes, we believe ultimately speaks of Jesus Christ, the one who is head of his people, the one who is assaulted here by the little horn, We know from the Gospels that Jesus was no stranger to conflict. There are many who came along to tempt him with their own alternative agendas. Jesus was tempted by Satan, dissuaded by Peter, challenged by his own family, deterred by the crowds, assaulted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Even his own disciples sought to impress their own self-centered agenda upon him. And yet the Lord Jesus remained unwavering, unswerving with his committed to his Father's will. Jesus said that a house divided cannot stand. He also said that he had not brought peace, but a sword. Brother will be a divided against brother. You see, Jesus and the gospel divides because he demands absolute submission. It's a matter of ultimate loyalties. And Christian households will have their fair share of conflict, the competing priorities over limited resources of time and energy and money. Parents have to make difficult decisions. They cannot please all the children. Children come into the world with agendas of their own, determined to get their way. This past Monday night, this Monday evening, I was painting on our front porch, finishing what, what, fi- putting the finishing touches on a, a gloriously productive long weekend of accomplishing some uh, home projects. And uh, our, we- our weekend was not without some productive conflict of my wife and I trying to figure out which projects to tackle in, in a short amount of time. And while I was painting outside, I heard yelling from across the street. And uh, my wife heard it as well, and we were not unaware of the situation. This had happened before, where the mother of the household and at least one of her teenage young adult daughters were having a row in a a very loud scuffle. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that the police showed up. They actually had called in uh, the police, uh, to help work through their issues, and after a time, I, they had discussions inside the house, and then they also had discussions outside the house, and uh, I, I won't deny that I took my time out on the porch just to keep, keep up with uh, the, the, the neighborhood situation and uh, the, the drama uh, developing across the street. You know, I actually commend my neighbors and the husband is on the police force of our township, so that helps to understand the connection with the police. But they called in higher authorities to help them 
work through their differences. How about you? When you have conflict, when there is discord in your marriage and your home, do you call upon the higher authority to come to your assistance? to help you in your time of need? Are you aware enough of the power struggle within your own household? Are you aware of the tension and the conflict and the desire for power and control that can be the tension point in marriages? That can be a point of contentiousness between parents and children. Are you willing to cry out, to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ? the Prince of Peace, the peacemaker, the one who has all power and control at his disposition. Power is ultimately about the heart. And conflict is only ultimately resolved when our selfishness is surrendered and submitted to the one ultimate authority. You see, I have to acknowledge I'm like this ram. My wife and I can be like this ram and this goat. We can butt heads with our children. I can be like this little horn, desiring power and conquest in my own temporary insanity, my own quest to be God. I need a radical repentance to submit to the one true power, the one true God, the one true Prince of Peace who will not oppress, who will not abuse his power. You see, Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who rules over all, who will destroy and eliminate all evil, is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and restores peace to broken households. The Prince of Peace acquired his peace acquires power, not by grasping for power, rather yielding power. It was the one who allowed men to have their way with him in submission to his Father's will. Jesus gave up control to gain control. Jesus yielded power to achieve the greatest power possible. Jesus Christ allowed evil to do It's worst to him that he might bring about the greatest good for all of God's people. Those of us who struggle with power and control would be wise to come to Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to adopt the way of the Lamb. Because you see, in the end, it's the Lamb that defeats the ram and the goat And the little horn, it is the Lamb of God who resolves the conflicts in our homes and quiets our own restless hearts. May the Lamb of God, the one who subdues nations and crushes the evil one, may he crush our pride and subdue our hearts in glad, humble submission to his sovereign majesty. Glory to the Lamb and unto the King eternal forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Forgive us our issues of power and control. 
Help us to yield and submit to your sovereign control in our lives. And we pray for that peace and that joy in a world filled with conflict and threat. May we trust in your steadfast love that endures forever. Amen.